he thought that he was going to have a way out of his identity crisis and the grass is always greener because when he becomes a vampire, it just, he's just handed a bigger identity crisis. <laughs> yeah. This is the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire Podcast, and I'm your host, Naomi Ekparrigan. I'm a writer, I'm a comedian, and I'm a vampire addict. And I'm your guide each week as we unpack the latest episode in AMC's new version of Anne Rice's classic, Interview with the Vampire. Today, we are getting into the third episode titled, Is My Very Nature That of a Devil? But I have decided to name, Vampires Cannot Do Open Relationships. My first guest is the man, the myth, the legend, Jacob Anderson, our very own Louis Dupont Dulac. Oh, okay, this is huge. And later, I find out how production designing genius Mara LaPere Schloop created an incredibly detailed, lived in, and vampified Storyville, a real historic neighborhood in 1900s New Orleans. This is your spoiler warning. Warning, warning, warning. Do you ever think that we were put on Earth for a larger purpose? I put you on this Earth. Your purpose is to enjoy yourself. That can't be all there is. We can eat animals and be okay. Rats, cats, cattle. Is okay what you desire, Louis? I wonder, should we be more selective? Episode three is directed by Keith Powell, AKA Twofer from 30 Rock. Y'all, can you believe? Twofer brings us prestige television. But okay, that's not really the point of the episode. Episode three is Louis' existential crisis, okay? It's been about five or six years since Lestat turned Louis into his vampire lover and protege. Now, you would think by this time Louis would be like, okay, yes, I'm a vampire, it's all good. No, 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 no. He's having this moral quandary around which humans deserve to be eaten, and Louis is preying on rats. And Lestat is like, ew, boy, get it together. Like Lestat, I'm very disappointed. At the same time, Louis and Lestat run into major relationship issues with sex outside the vampiric bond. Let's just put it that way. You know, Lestat's like, honey, I've been around here over 100 years. I'm out in these streets, okay? I am pansexual and I need to do me. And the point is, <laughs> I get it. You're living for centuries, but you still can't do open relationships. <laughs> Figure it out, vampires, after all this time. Finally, though, Louis does make Lestat proud when he embraces his vampire instincts. But then Lestat's mad about it because he embraces his instincts by killing Alderman Fenwick. And I said, get him, girl. I said, get him, girl. Now look, Alderman Fenwick deserves it, but you know what does not deserve to happen? A full-on race riot in Storyville. Yeah, because they just really end up burning that to the ground and that ruins a lot of things for me. By the end of the episode, things are not looking good for Louis. That is until Louis finds a young girl in a burning building who he calls his redemption. Y'all, I'm skeptical about that. But you know what? There's no better person to get into all this with than Jacob Anderson. You may have heard a little bit of this conversation in our preview episode, but this is the full unabridged version, okay? So if you think you know, you don't know. Okay, y'all, I am here with Louis Dupont Delac himself. Jacob Anderson, Hedy, Hedy, Hedy. Hello, Naomi. <laughs> I don't know, but that, that wasn't even really Louis' voice. I don't, that was, you know, sometimes you open your mouth and it doesn't come out how you thought it was going to come out. Always. Always. Absolutely. 
very relatable. Um, <laughs> can, first of all, let's talk about this, okay, honey? Can we talk about how you stay in the prestige world? We need to talk to your agent. You are coming through, honey. You said Broadchurch. You said Game of Thrones. You said Interview with a Vampire. I'm calling... This is what I call all bangers, no mash, okay? It's not all bangers, honestly. <laughs> just, just take a cursory glance at my IMDb. It's, they're not all bangers. <laughs> I've been very lucky, though. I have been very lucky, the things that I've been involved in. But it's not, I wouldn't say it's all bangers, no mash. <laughs> and look, we like a bit of mash, right? Like, mash is good. Some, some carbohydrates. Well, that's true. That's true. A little carb to line the stomach. <laughs> but like, this, especially, you know, Louis, like, you're doing it all. You're serving us dialects, okay? <laughs> you're serving us languages. You're serving us time periods, hunty. <laughs> look what can i say i'm a very lucky man this is definitely though i would say like of everything i've ever done i've never in my professional life felt this comfortable in what i was wearing like wearing like a beautiful suit every day really and it fits like it fits me and i can move <laughs> in it and I can, like it it was pretty amazing the things i got to do there was never a, a normal day on the set of interviews <laughs> well really it is a stunning show i love a show where i get to get lost in a world you know i mm -hmm. say take me away like now on earth is too much and so <laughs> yeah but uh, before we get into our hard-hitting questions mm -hmm. um because i am a journalist if nothing else um if you were an actual vampire would you eat people um needs must <laughs> <laughs> I guess I probably would. I think I'd rather eat people than rats. See, this is the thing. This is what we get into in the show is I was just about to say, but I'd eat bad people. But then what does that mean? Right. That's such a complicated thing. Maybe I'd eat, I'd only eat people that were just about to die. Okay. Like wow. minutes away from dying. Mm, okay. Okay. But I don't know if that's going to be that good blood. That minutes away from dying blood, it's not going to have the flavor. That's no. what I think. <laughs> it's not going to be, it's not sweet blood. No. But no. it's 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 like vaguely ethical blood. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> vaguely ethical blood. Okay, season two. That's what we're going to unpack. We're going to get into vaguely ethical blood. Okay, now here's the thing, though. This is now another show that has its associated fandom. And this is a show that has people who have their expectations and their needs. And, you know, it's so much bigger than the character you're playing, right? Like, it has a life of its own to some extent. Yeah. How do you approach something like that? Do you shut it all out? and just kind of stay on the page with your script? Do you devour everything else to make sure you're doing it differently? What's that process? I feel very, very connected to Louis on lots of different levels. I feel very understood by him, and I feel like I understand him. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing to hang on to when you're playing a character that's adapted from any, you know, source material is like, what does that character mean to you? How do you connect to that character? That's the thing to keep with you because you're never going to make everyone happy. Right. Like everybody's not going to be satisfied with, with choices you make, but I really love Louis. So I decided to, to, to continue with love and hopefully that's enough, you know, love and admiration. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that is, it's obvious 
in the portrayal of this character who is so complicated and he has so much, it's, it's you know, he has enough going on before he becomes a vampire. <laughs> okay? It felt like Louis, I said, yeah. honey, you got a full plate. Yeah. Are you sure you want to add a vampire to the mix? I know. It's, it's like kind of the funniest thing about Louis's whole existence, but also it's like the central theme for him is like, he thought that he was going to have a way out of his identity crisis and the grass is always greener because when he becomes a vampire, it just, he's just handed a bigger identity crisis. <laughs> Bless him. Yeah, yeah. As we're saying, Lestat and Louis have this complicated relationship. It's an existential and ethical questioning going on in episode three between who should we eat and how and then also monogamy, loyalty, Jonah, Antoinette. It's like, you know, what is this relationship? What are we committing to? What are we saying we are? So let's listen to a clip that whew, shooketh. What can I say? I'm a lot. I'm not perfect. I knew it. I knew you were there. Yes. You jealous? Yes. I don't like Sherry. What about Antoinette? It's different. I don't have feelings for her. He did me some face and I drove him home. I heard your heart standing! You watched the whole thing like some creeper. And then I watched you pull over and drain a dog and run down an alleyway for two more rats. This is not a life. That's because you took my life. I got nothing. I lost everything. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, that moment is the crux of the episode and it's the crux of their relationship. Right? Like, to yeah. me, that clip tells you so much about who these two people are <laughs> and how they view relationships. Yeah. I, I think there's, like, a thing between them about boundaries, right? Like, Lestat's, like, he, he was being a creeper. He went and followed Louis. He felt like he could do that, and he's being possessive. This scene really illustrates a larger thing in this episode of their differences are widening. They're getting further and further apart from each other. And sort of realizing that this is probably not going to work. Because I thought it was going to take Louis more time to admit that. Do you believe Louis loves Lestat? Yes. I, I think that if Louis didn't love Lestat on some level, then he would have already like left that situation. He gets to that point in this episode, and I think like he's he's a man on fire. He's just like, it's going down for him. Everything is falling apart. But he also, like, when he says, you took my life, like, the reason that all of this is happening is because you took my life is not true. Like, he's blaming, <laughs> he's blaming Lestat. It maybe wouldn't be fair for him to put all the blame on Lestat, but he just doesn't know where to put it, I think. Um, and he's, like, he's got a lot of hubris, Louis. He's just, like, he's a snob. He comes, he comes from... He comes from a, a life where he's always kind of had what he wanted. He's, he's been given everything um, and then was in a situation where he had to earn everything. But like, I think he still, he still is looking for places to, to blame mistakes that he's made and things that he hasn't quite thought of, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, Louis reckoning. He's reckoning in 1910s. He's reckoning in the present. Certainly a weariness. A weariness <laughs> with that at age. Yeah, there's definitely a weariness. <laughs> I'm quite an anxious person, and Louis is quite an anxious mm -hmm. person. It's like a bit of an understatement. <laughs> 
Oh yes, Louis is very, very anxious. And Lestat is cool and collected, which feels like a very relatable relationship issue to me. How much did you talk with Sam Reed, who plays Lestat, about this relationship dynamic? I think this probably annoyed Sam quite a lot, but I always used to think about the sort of bickering between the two of them as like, okay, so what is this in a real world setting? Like what mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the what is the most domestic version of this? disagreement that they're having yeah when we talked about stuff before we shot occasionally sam would be like yeah but we're vampires (laughs) 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 and i'd be like yeah but did you you didn't take the bins out did you and that's annoying (laughs) i think that it was it was a scene where we're like disposing of bodies and i was like it's bins i've like we've i've walked you to the bin to explain to you how to throw away a trash can you know (laughs) Oh, yeah, trash, not bin. No, no, I know. I'm bilingual. (laughs) I know both. (laughs) You know, talking about Sam and sort of the way, how much time did y'all get before you started actually shooting? It's like, okay, we're in love now, but it's going to be very tortured and complicated. Rolling. Yeah. I don't know if I completely believe in luck, but I think there is kind of, there's like a weird cosmic luck (laughs) in this whole thing. It is a huge roll of the dice. Mm -hmm. The first day we met each other, obviously we both had our masks on and it was kind of, we had a hug and we were like, all right. And then we just spent the next day just walking around New Orleans and getting to know each other. And um, I truly love that man so much. Like we, we connected so quickly and just found like, and I think part of that as well is that there's, a level of trust that you ha- that we had to have right. otherwise we weren't going to be able to do this like at, at that at those hours and those scenes mm-hmm. and the intimacy of the, their relationship and also like the toxicity and the fire in it like we had to really like hold each other and and be like all right have we got each other's back and we did we we're just like we're in this together let's listen to each other mm-hmm. and and try and have fun. <laughs> and we did. We had a lot of fun. I thought that taking this role would be quite triggering for me in lots of different ways. I thought it was going to force me to like have to reconcile with lots of feelings I had. I thought it was going to be like just a guilt and shame and despair fest for, you know, for six months. And actually, I just found it like really, really cathartic being Louis. And Louis helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's something about acceptance in Louis and acceptance of self and like, this is who I am. This is who I've been. And I'm I'm enduring and I'm choosing to keep going. I'm choosing to accept who I am. And I, I, that was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I rather than sort of feeling tortured, I think I ended up just feeling very held (laughs) very like comforted by the whole thing in a weird sort of way Storyville is the sinking ship and naturally you are the first to drown but that's your problem Louis always has been you're arrogant you haven't accepted your place in this world and your pale lover this seemingly endless supply of capital and the weird goings on in your 
sodomite townhouse won't change the fact that you're a tiny man flying too close to the sun. And that's what I am, Louis. The sun. Why is your heart beating so fast? <laughs> ah! 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 You said I'm arrogant? <laughs> Maybe I am arrogant. <laughs> what are you? I'm a vampire. Fenwick got his. I will say, did not mind it. I was like very excited. <laughs> At the same time, Louis is, is out here just, you know, draining rats and draining dogs. And so it was such a big leap to go from that to like, not just am I going to finally eat a person, I'm going to eat a public person mm. and then string him up by the entrails in front of everybody. Yeah, there are a few things in this episode. I think there's like there's a, a racial component to it as well where Louis' business is falling apart and it's because of gentrification, racism, and he's feeling more and more helpless and Lestat keeps telling him to be f- more and more free and to like give in to who you are and be the vampire I know you are and all this kind of stuff. And Louis's like, but me being a vampire doesn't buy me out of the way other people perceive me. It doesn't buy me out of this real shit in the world. I I can't just be like you. I can't be this sort of mischievous baby running around, having fun, eating people here and there and doing whatever I like. Like I, I, I'm still gonna be a black man as soon as I walk out of this house. And I think that that's like a huge part of their rift as well. Let's start just not understanding that. Right. Right. But this is very much a personal vendetta. This isn't an an emotional kill, but he just does it in this very like detached way that he hasn't really been able to connect to before. He has a reason now. He has a purpose for killing. It's not just like trying to make Lestat happy or not just trying to, you know, do what he thinks he should be doing. But the repercussions of that are arguably disastrous for for human beings. And there's a human toll that it takes. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the sense, though, despite the fact that this is a personal kill, it didn't, I wasn't sure if Louis felt the actual catharsis from it. Did you feel like Louis was meant to be satisfied and by killing Fenwick the way he did? No, I don't, I don't think he finds any, I don't think he, he gets satisfaction from it. And I think that kicks off, I think, this like emptiness about his place in humanity. There's a version of this scene where it's like, it's him trying out what he sort of proposes at the beginning. Like, why don't we spare like the good, the good humans and only feed from the, from those that are like an illness on, on, on the world. Um, mm-hmm. But it still doesn't give him the satisfaction that yeah. he needs. I'm not entirely sure that Louis is ever going to be satisfied for all of Anne Rice's vampires. It's, it's about endurance, isn't it? It's about can you live with what you are and and who you are and what you do? Can you live with that and still go on another day? 
or night. Mm-hmm. Do you think, does Louis regret becoming a vampire? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But then he wouldn't want to be a, I don't think he'd want to be human again either. Okay. Huh. He's very well, complicated. He, <laughs> yeah. Well, end of episode one, when you go to the church and start to confess, and it really feels to me, I was like, if Lestat hadn't come in, Louis was going to kill himself that night. Yeah. Right? Like, Louis was getting it off his chest. He was going to get right with God. And then he was going to go do something. Yeah, that's yeah, that's how I see it. I think the fact that he's never going to find satisfaction is what throws him into despair every day. Mm -hmm. Louis feels that there's just something broken in him. You know, if if episode two is is Louis being like, I don't think that I'm ever going to be like a, a true vampire. I feel like this episode is Louis being like, well, I'm never going to truly be human again. And he has to kind of come to terms with that. Well, am I going to be a human or am I going to be a vampire? Right, right. And, uh, and he's, he's both in lots of ways. It's complicated. I, like it changes all the time, I think. Like, and it always did for me. It all, the answer always changed. And I think that that's kind of, again, it's a very human thing. Your, your answers do change every day. Yeah, the goalposts move. Yeah. And I think with somebody like Louis, the world has to literally go up in flames for him to let it go. You're a vampire. You have all the power in the world. And Louis like, I would like to buy the Azalea. It's mm. like, Louis, honey, think bigger. <laughs> think bigger. Stop trying to be a businessman. <laughs> but that is holding on to human notions of power and what you think will make you feel good, right? Like, that is that is his big swing. And it's like, no, like you got to let all this go. Mm -hmm. Louis got to let go of all the human stuff. But that then brings me to Claudia. I ran from the quarter that night, ran to where the violence spread most wild. I stumbled through the streets like an irrational child who had tested his strength on a small bird and now asked, can I make it whole again? One of those inconceivable moments where who you were before and who you will be forever after is marked in time. I could not save the Azalea. I could not save Storyville. I could not save the aunt on the wrong side of the wall, but I could save her. <laughs> my light, my Claudia, my redemption. You know, we're talking about him being detached and coming off of embracing his vampire nature, choosing to take a child. It's sort of like, obviously, the opposite of detachment. The opposite of letting go. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, like you said, he he's not thinking big. I, like, I think that on some level, Claudia is a way for him to, to absolve himself of guilt. Okay, if I can save mm. this one human, then I can kind of save them all, at least in my eyes. I can forgive myself for what I've done, for what I've wrought on this on this community if I just save her. And also the way my my mother and my sister just looked at me makes me think that I have just lost mm -hmm. them. I have lost my sister who is possibly the only person that like I feel truly understands me aside from the start and that's not working out at the moment like i think she's a band-aid mm -hmm. <laughs> for somebody that is going to live for eternity 
he thinks very short term <laughs> and, it, and it, it creates problems. It creates a lot of problems for him and for everybody else that he drags into it. Right, right. Oh my God, this has been very <laughs> cathartic for me personally. I just have one last question for you before I let you go. I wanted to end with this segment that we call A Little Taste, all right? Because vampires are all about that temptation. Without giving away spoilers, can you give us a taste of what's to come in future episodes? A hint, a little something that we should be looking out for. Hmm. <laughs> I was going to say despair, but like... <laughs> That's Louis's whole deal, right? <laughs> That's not something new. <laughs> More despair. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Yeah. Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and answer my questions. You are the best. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you for indulging in my uh, waffling. <laughs> that was fun. You guys, I asked for voicemails and you delivered. And that's why I love you. And we're even getting questions. Let's listen to one. Hello. I would like to know more about the costumes and the research that went behind the scenes. The first ever show that's making me like obsessed with like just any, everything behind the scenes. But it's so interesting to learn about like what used to be a red light district in New Orleans. And I thought it's so cool hearing everything from the background because again this is like the only show that i'm actually obsessively like making sure it's like, there's any new information to learn about and i'm excited for the show i'm gonna have a viewing party with my friends we're gonna have a great time and that's it okay thank you we love a viewing party we love creating a moment creating a holiday creating an excuse to gather the family and yes we understand this show makes us all want to dig deep get information why you think i'm podcasting you want to learn more about the history of New Orleans? Honey, we got the person for you. We're going to talk all things Storyville and red light districts with production designer extraordinaire Mara LaPere Schloop. But first, I need a glass of water. I went on an emotional journey with Jacob. Okay, Mara girl, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners, telling them your name and what you do? Hi, everybody. My name is Mara LaPierre Schleif, and I was the production designer on the first season of Interview with the Vampire. So my first hard-hitting question is, if you were a vampire, what would your coffin room look like? Well, it's this isn't really fair because I got to design their coffin room. And so my, my coffin would definitely be Louis' coffin. <laughs> <laughs> I think, what, you know, one of the first things when Roland and I were talking about the design aesthetic of vampires, one of the big things we wanted to avoid was the cliches of of like vampire decor and like getting away from the bordello reds and the kind of gothic and just these like really intense dark brooding interiors okay okay you're giving us your taste your vampire style and you live in new orleans right mm -hmm. so this project was a big deal for you i mean Anne is an icon there what was your relationship like with Anne rice and her books before you started working on the show well i had the epiphany on the show that i think the reason i'm in New Orleans is actually because of Anne Rice. And I was a voracious reader growing up. I just remember being like entranced by the place more than anything. I just thought, where the hell is that? You know, that it's just, it just oozed atmosphere. The, the crazy thing about Anne Rice is that in New Orleans, she's just this 
you know, larger than life figure here. And my, actually, while we were in school, my husband was in an acapella group. They were invited to sing at Anne Rice's Christmas party. And I was like, I gotta get in there. I was like, I don't care what. So I definitely pretended like I was in their acapella group and snuck in just to see your house. <laughs> this whole thing is going to make me sound like I'm a crazy stalker. I actually live like four blocks from that house right now. Okay, so it sounds like basically you've been training for this, okay? Your whole life. So what was your reaction to being offered the job? Were you like, put me in, coach? I got 12 drawings already. No, the exact opposite. I was like, I was like, no, like this can't be done. (laughs) Having lived in New Orleans for so long and knowing how annoyed people are by inaccurate depictions of the city. Mm. And, you know, it's like people make t-shirts when TV shows get things wrong here. And oh, wow. um, so it's like, I was like, this, the stakes are really high. So, you know, I was very trepidatious and because yep. I didn't want to become a pariah <laughs> in the city afterwards. But when else am I going to get an opportunity like this? And I'd rather do it and be hated than have somebody else do it and piss me off, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, I went into it and, um, and I have to say, I'm so glad that I did really, I feel like it's such a victory and I, I hope that the audience can feel that way as well. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud to have my name on it. Honey, that's all we could ask for in this biz. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so obviously, you know, you've been in New Orleans a long time. You know, you've been inside Anne's house. One of the big changes in this version of Interview with a Vampire is the time period, right? Mm-hmm. The series starts in New Orleans in 1910 in a neighborhood called Storyville. Yeah. I, th- You know, I think that was the other thing that really drew me to this project. I think everyone involved with this, when they first read the scripts, you kind of recoil because you're like, wait, it's a different time period. You know, like, how could they do this? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, this is actually really incredible because it's a time period that hasn't really been depicted in film and television. And that's the era of Storyville, Mm -hmm. which many people attribute to kind of the birth of jazz. And so much of of our cultural identity took roots in this one small neighborhood. And so it was a really exciting challenge, but again, very daunting in, in that it was a 40 block square, basically, um, that was torn down in the 1940s to make way for the Iberville housing projects. So that architecture doesn't, you know, although there's a lot of like similar building types and block types in, in areas, Storyville no longer exists. You know, what's so interesting, too, is that Prior to watching this, I hadn't heard of Storyville. And I I was like watching and Googling because I was like, was this a real place? You know, I didn't know. And so, as you said, this is a neighborhood that doesn't exist anymore. And you are capturing this space that has such historical significance, but maybe not a lot of people are aware of it. What else did you feel was important to capture and convey about Storyville to a viewer who may know nothing about it? You know, Storyville was originally called The District. And it was kind of ironically, it ended up being called Storyville after the name of the councilman who initiated it. And basically what was happening was in the end you know, of the 1800s, people in New Orleans were moving further uptown and all the vice that was 
historically downtown was kind of seeping into these other neighborhoods. And so this particular alderman knew about red light districts in Europe. <laughs> he knew about red light districts. He, it's like, okay. He had an idea about them. Um, <laughs> so he proposed, he was like, listen, instead of letting it be everywhere, let's keep it, you know, create this zone. And it, it's funny because it, it was never legal, but they basically oh. looked the other way. There's a, there's 40 block grid where y'all can do your stuff, you know, and just don't come into the other parts of town. Okay. In 1897, that kicked off and it was very exciting. And it very quickly became like the biggest source of revenue in the city. You know, it's like, this was the happening right. place to be. No wonder you can't find no pictures of Storyville. They were like, this ain't really legal. It's on the low. Don't take my picture. Ex- exactly. <laughs> but they made these, what they called the guidebooks to sin, the blue books. You know, it's like pocket Yelp um, where you could get off the train, someone would give you a blue book and it, it had every single venue and they were like coding for like what could you could get in these places. And like, it was literally the women were listed basically like stock, you know, like it was like these, this is who's here. This is you can, you can enjoy. Mm-hmm. But what's crazy and what's really, what I find the most interesting about it is that it was largely run by black women like the madams were the ones who were running this and so just from like social aspect of social study you're like wait this is fascinating the clientele was largely all white men and but then the the girls you know like they would have some houses that were mixed some that were all white women some that were black but you know it's just kind of this there was a lot of race mixing happening in a very specific way but still, I love that that like the ownership of it was done by women. And these were women that like had double lives where it was like a Creole woman who would have a fancy ass house uptown and then she'd go downtown and run her brothel. And so. Wow. Really? Yeah. Like crazy. <gasps> okay, I love these women. Now I have another deep dive to do. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Then there also were, uh, and this is where we get into jazz. There was this new thing happening in the U.S. called um, concert saloons, and they were kind of based on an English model of um, music halls. But now they're bringing in musicians basically to keep people there longer. Yeah. But they became these entertainment hubs as well. And this is where you get like, you know, Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton are playing there and like building these bands. It's just this like fascinating mix of things. We don't get into it in a ton of detail, but it's there. Yeah. You know, it's like Jelly Roll is playing in the in in the fair play. You know, yeah. it's like. And- so wait, you're saying Lestat did not write the Wolverine Blues as he claims to have written? <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> okay, okay, no comment. Fair enough. This is a mysterious period in history, I'll say that. But in this episode, we see the end of Storyville. Do you know what brought about the end of the neighborhood in real life? Because at one point, they mentioned Ordinance 4118. But what is that? Was it a real thing? Ordinance 4118 is actually, it's not even about the closing of the brothels. It's not about prostitution necessarily. It's about segregation. World War One comes along and... It actually was a, it wasn't just in Louisiana, it wasn't just New Orleans, but it was a national thing where they basically were like, you know what, we need to keep things so segregated before our men go off to war. Mm-hmm. New Orleans was a big port of embarkation. So the, you know, Navy dudes are all leaving from here. They're all getting weird STDs. And so like, they're like, we can't have our guys getting sick before they even go to Europe. So they banned these 
you know, dens of depravity with from within five miles of a, you know, of a port where you had officers leaving. So there's all these things happening that um, so down in, in 1917, this social experiment is put to an end. Mm-hmm. But it is this crazy moment in history that that nobody really knows about. Uh-huh. I love shows uh-huh. where you see something and you're like, wait, I want to know more about that. And let me, let, let let it lead me to something exciting. Right. Oh my God, Mara, this is fascinating to me. And with everything you're telling me, you know, I'm hearing the, how you were really able to honor the past while also still being creative, right? You still get to do your thing. You don't have to be a slavish to all the details. What conversations did you have with the showrunner, Rollin Jones, about how much you would lean into the history of it all? So I think one of the first conversations I had with um, Rollin and with Alan, the the producing director, was we are treading a line here between fantasy and period. And like, where do we where do we stand on that spectrum visually? And as a designer, I think that the projects that I've worked on in the past and, the, and what I most like doing is even if there is a tinge of fantasy that it's like there's a strong foundation in gritty visceral reality you know that you you are depicting a world that has ha- you know existed before and then you can kind of take creative license from that and unfortunately Rollin and Alan and I were all on the exact same page about this that we didn't want this to be fantasy first where it's you know it's almost like the fictional universe version of Lestat's New Orleans. You know, this was this is New Orleans in 19, you know, 10 through 1939. And it just so happens to be that there's some vampires in that world. Right. Absolutely. These vampires are living in a world that feels very, very real. Did you shoot in any real historic locations in New Orleans to get that feel? So Anne Rice had always said that 1132 Royal Street, um, also known as Gallier House, was her inspiration for Lestat's townhouse. And so when we first started scouting, I, I said to Rollin, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually shoot it? But it's a museum. And so we were like, yeah, there's probably not a snowball's chance in hell that that's going to happen. But we talked to them and they're actually super game. So 1132 Royal Street is the exterior. So all of our street scenes happen at that location. And then we built our interior set on stage, that which gave us some license to, to modify things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rollin is such an amazing creative partner because I would come back and nerd out about the skylight <laughs> and then the next week I'd get a script and he'd incorporated the skylight. You can't ask for a better collaboration than that, that, that it's like everyone's always trying to make it more exciting and interesting and dynamic. Absolutely. Oh my God. This is very exciting. So for everybody watching, if you're an Anne Rice <laughs> fan, you got to now take an eagle eye. Okay. Cause Mara is giving us <laughs> these details. Okay. She is here for you to guide you. So you got to keep a lookout. Now, before I let you go, I have one question for you. Outside of New Orleans, what do you think would be some good vampire cities? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I love how I stumped you. Oh, gosh. I know. <laughs> I don't know. I have to say, American cities don't have a hell of a lot to offer. Like, I don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like if I was a vampire, I wouldn't be in like Tampa. <laughs> I'd need people to to keep me entertained in some some capacity. Oh my god. I can just imagine a vampire being like, they said Austin was weird, but it's really not that impressive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Mara, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us all things Storyville and telling us all about your genius. What you have done is amazing. I hope you are so happy because you have given us a gift. Yeah, of course. It's always nice when our little part of the show gets recognized. Thank you for letting me be part of it. Ooh, okay. Mara is a genius. And I feel like I just went on a little history lesson, don't you? Speaking of which, I want to share a little historical Storyville fact with you before we go. In this episode, we meet Jelly Roll Morton, a nod to the famous jazz musician who actually wrote the Wolverine Blues. Okay, let's start. Morton was from New Orleans during the Storyville era, and at the age of 14, he began playing piano in brothels. He went by the name Jelly Roll, which, y'all, is slang for female genitalia. When he was playing in the brothels, he had to lie and tell his grandmother, who he lived with, that he was a night watchman in a barrel factory. But no, he was just out in these clubs. And when his grandma eventually found out that he was playing at brothels, she disowned him. She said he was playing the devil's music and it was going to be his downfall. Luckily, he didn't listen to grandma. I wouldn't normally say that, but this is one instance where it's good that he didn't listen to grandma. He recorded the Wolverine Blues in a studio in Richmond, Indiana in 1923 and is now known as one of the first and greatest jazz musicians to ever live. You're welcome for that fun fact. Now let's listen to a little bit of that Wolverine Blues. Next week, we'll be getting the lowdown on episode four with Bailey Bass, who plays our new lead, Claudia. We'll also talk with Dr. Katherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology who wrote the Anne Rice biography, Prism of the Night. Y'all, she's the Anne Rice expert, and we got her! As always, please call us with your burning vampire questions and feelings. Give us a ring at 888-788-VAMP. That's 888-788-8267. Your message might be included right here in a future episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening to the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire podcast. Watch new episodes of Interview with the Vampire every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC Plus. Podcast episodes drop the same day. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC Plus, go to amcplus.com and use promo code INTERVIEWPOD. That's interview P-O-D. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Our producers are Ben Goldberg and Aaron Kelly. Our associate producer is Natalie Paert. Darby Maloney is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. Thank you to Jacob Anderson and Mara LaPere-Schloop for joining us. And I am Naomi Akparikin. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees.